0: Love Talk Radio.
1: What's up, people? Welcome to the show. Um, I got a good one for you today. We got Stephen Crowder going after Martin Luther King. (laughs) Just saying the words is hilarious, and uh, he basically makes the argument that this guy was actually in favor of violent protests, and you you don't know what you're talking about. Um, Really quite an amazing uh, clip I'm going to show you. I also have uh, some amazing numbers about Republican registration in the era of Joe Biden, and the Democrats should be absolutely panicked. Paul Begala went on CNN and uh, said the quiet part loud yet again, blamed voters instead of Biden for his failures. I have one of the best uh, campaign ads that I've ever seen coming out of Louisiana. We'll talk about that. Dan Crenshaw berates a 10-year-old hilarious um and much much more oh a televangelist claims he's persecuted and you're gonna love the reason why he says he's persecuted and then uh later on donald trump is asked a policy question since he clearly is angling to run in 2024 and he can't give a single policy answer so it, it's really it's really something something special to, to watch that man mentally take a dump every time he opens his mouth all right Uh, Let's go ahead and get started, kick it off here with uh, this, just this completely bonkers, stunning Axios story that I'm going to show you. Got some amazing new numbers that rolled in this week about uh, Republican registration during the Biden era. So take a look at this from Axios here. This says quite a bit. Charted, GOP surged as Biden slumped. Percentage of Americans who identify with or lean to the Republican or Democratic Party. You can see there in uh, the first quarter of 2021, 49 percent said Democratic, 40 percent said Republican. And then the great switch happened. It goes to 49 Democrat, 43 Republican. That's in the second quarter of 2021. Then we get a virtual tie in uh, the third quarter. 45 Democrat, 44 Republican. Now it's 47 Republican and 42 Democrat. So there is uh, an absolute flocking away from Joe Biden and the Democrats, and there is movement towards the Republicans. Um, now let me give you some more information on this. Uh, this is, by the way, the actual numbers are from Gallup, but that's Axios reporting on the Gallup numbers. Uh, The polling found a huge shift in party preference over the course of 2021 from a a nine-point Democratic advantage in the first quarter to a five-point Republican advantage in the fourth quarter. This is the biggest swing in one calendar year for Gallup's entire history of tracking this, which is about 30 years. Uh, In 2021... So the actual number of um, I think people who are registered with the respective parties, twenty nine percent democratic, twenty seven percent Republican, and then you have forty two percent who are independents. So independents are the largest block. Now by the way, a lot of people misinterpret this and don't understand that just because you're independent doesn't mean you have like amorphous or apolitical or centrist political views in fact. Uh, it's divided about 50-50 within that block of uh, independence for right-leaning independence and left-leaning independence. And so you basically have independents that, like, caucus, effectively, with the Democrats or the Republicans. But this is the largest swing in the history of Gallup polling away from the Democrats and, and towards the Republicans. This is the Biden era. You know, every day I come out here and I get on my soapbox and I'm a broken record and the one criticism of both me and this show that is totally accurate is that I'm a broken record. It's true, I am a broken record. Uh, And the reason I'm a broken record is because I didn't just wake up this morning and all the problems switched and now we have different problems. The problems still exist as they are. 30 million Americans don't have healthcare. Uh, You know, you have about 500,000 Americans who are homeless. You have about 80% of Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck. So I bring these same things up over and over because it's the reality of the situation that we have to deal with. So, yes, guilty, broken record. But the fact of the matter is, Joe Biden facilitated this downfall. Why? Because he had an FDR-style mandate to govern, and he morphed into Ronald Reagan. In terms of the policies that actually got implemented, it's underwhelming to say the least. So when's the last time he did anything for the American people? I mean, probably the most straightforward answer to that question is the $1,400 checks that he sent. Now, even that was uh, disappointing because he said $2,000 over and over and over, and then he was Weasley and said, well, Trump already gave you $600, so I'll give you $1,400 to make a total of $2,000. But either way, the American people uh, gave Biden at the time a 57% approval rating because they said, okay, look, you're doing something for me. You're doing something for me you just cut me a check okay high approval rating uh the democrats were holding their lead in terms of uh, people who identify with them in the country and then as soon as biden started to twiddle his thumbs and have these policies that he didn't really fight for or twist arms to get implemented then came the downfall now don't tell me because the the line you hear from mainstream media and from democratic elites is, well, what do, you, what do you want him to do? It's not his fault. Nothing could have happened because you got Manchin, you got Cinema, they're blocking it, and it is what it is. That is absolute garbage because even if I grant you that point, which I don't, Joe Biden can sign executive orders. And there are plenty of executive orders that would be wonderful for the people of this country that he is refusing to sign. Whether it's legalizing marijuana, which he can do today, freeing all the nonviolent drug offenders, which he could do today pardon, Edward Snowden and Julian Assange, which he could do today, Uh, eliminate student loan debt, which he could do today. He could do rolling student loan debt elimination, which is effectively free college, and he could do it today. He is choosing not to do it. He's choosing not to sign an executive order to give all Americans health care during this pandemic. He absolutely has the authority, the legal right to do that, because there's a provision of Obamacare that effectively says, hey, during an emergency, the government can pick up the tab for people's health care. He could do it. He's choosing not to do it. So he has nobody to blame but himself. And the corporate Democrats need to look in the mirror. It is absolutely their fault. Now, they'll turn around and blame the left. How can you blame the left? Our vision has not been implemented at all, not by any stretch of the imagination. We're very clear about the things we want and the things we would fight for, and none of those things are being pursued at the moment. So I don't know how anybody can blame the left. But understand something, guys. This was not set in stone. This didn't have to happen. This great exodus from people who are in the Democratic Party and aligned with the Democratic Party didn't have to happen. Again, broken record, but here we go. FDR was effectively a social democratic president. Now, of course, he did horrible things, many on social issues, Japanese internment, you name it. And I'm not downplaying that or saying, hey, let's embrace that. No. But when you look at the economic programs of FDR, the New Deal, for example, Americans got a tiny little taste of social democracy, and they said, I want this. And they elected FDR four times. This was before we had term limits. In fact, term limits were a response to FDR who couldn't stop winning, and the Republicans panicked and said, if we don't do term limits, we're never going to win. So Americans got a little taste of social democracy, and they said, yes, more of this. Elected four times. When FDR was in office, Democrats held 80% of the House and 80% of the Senate. This is what can happen and what should happen if you actually deliver for working people. You look out for them, they look out for you. But instead, you get in there and you twiddle your thumbs and you do nothing and you say, oh, what can I do? Joe Manchin's got me and Kirsten Cinemas has me and where's my stapler? I don't think I could get this done. And what happens? People are running away from you at 1,000 miles an hour. And by the way, I agree with the Bernie Sanders point on this when he says, this isn't because the Republicans are, are liked. This isn't because they've done anything good. This isn't because they stand for anything substantive. No, it's that it's, people feel crossed by the Democratic Party correctly, and so they're just running away. And some people will land in this apolitical nihilistic space, and some people will land in the I guess I align more with the right space. That's the way it works. We have these pendulum elections time and time again oh, these people aren't doing anything for me. I'll go this way. Oh, these people aren't doing anything for me. I'll go this way. And the pendulum is just going to keep going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth with nobody delivering for the American people. And by the way, all the GOP has is culture war stuff because they are open about the fact, I don't want to do voting rights. I don't want to help the American people out economically. I don't want to do anything on healthcare. So what am I going to do? I'm just going to virtue signal to align with people when it comes to the culture war. So, you know, they've in an era where there's a pandemic and a collapsing health care system and economic devastation, all they're talking about is like, don't you hate cancel culture? Doesn't wokeness suck? Well, at least we're against wokeness, and we don't want to call you racist and bigoted or anything like that. We want to welcome you with open arms. So come be with us. And the Democrats are the crazy ones. And look, they're not doing anything for you. So just come with us, and I'll virtue signal around social issues and uh, you'll support me, and then I'll proceed to do absolutely nothing. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. It wouldn't be that hard to move these numbers. Look, the polling just came in the other day. We talked about it on the show. Biden just had his lowest single uh, approval rating of his presidency, 33%. Did you know Donald Trump's lowest single approval rating was 34%? So Biden has now gone below Donald Trump, and that poll for Trump came out after January 6th. Do you know how disliked you have to be to get below that guy after January 6th? Do you understand that? I went through the the history of it, too. Barack Obama's lowest single poll was 40%, a full seven points higher than Joe Biden's current number. Now, to be fair to Biden, uh, the actual average of polls, he's at 41%, but his lowest single one came out at 33%. The only modern presidents who were below biden are the two bushes george w bush at his lowest was 25 percent and george hw at his lowest was i think 29 percent. but even bill clinton at his lowest 37 percent. look this is what you get and then what did biden uh, what did uh, he do the other day he came out and he said uh, god's honest truth i don't know if we're going to get this through well i guess points for honesty on that one but if you had any strategic ability or if you had a pair of balls you would have twisted arms. It's unbelievable what's going on. Even if I grant you, oh, you hit a legislative brick wall because of Mansion and Cinema, which I don't grant you because you don't know how to fight. You don't know how to get them to fall in line. You don't know how to get, do the character stick approach, play the mafia boss approach. Um, you still could do executive orders. Even if I grant you the whole, okay, whatever, you know, Congress is, is deadlocked. It's not going anywhere. There's nothing you can do to get these people on board. Again, I don't believe that. But even if I grant you that, Break out that executive order pen right now, and he's not, and it's a joke. And now, at this very late date, um, it's got the news that finally they're doing uh, free testing. Now, there are caveats as to um, what makes it perhaps not as good as other ways they could have done it, but you could at least now get some free, I believe, the rapid tests. They just launched the website yesterday, and then now we just heard they're going to send out 400 million free and 95 masks. So now, look, those are good things, but where would Biden's approval rating be if he did this uh, earlier in his time in office? If he did it within the first two or three months of his administration, where would his approval rating be? Or he did it, let's say, after he cut the $1,400 checks, you know, a month later, then you send it out. Now people are getting a sense, and not incorrectly, that this feels like it's too little too late. You know, Omicron is already surging across the country. We have, what, over 1,000 deaths a day. Uh, hospitals are jam-packed, and now, you say, at this late date? I don't want to be too harsh on this front because I want to incentivize more things like this. Okay, send out the tests, send out, send out the uh, the masks, but you just get the sense they're always like two or three steps behind. And they're not governing in any sort of effective way. It's really pathetic. So you have this great exodus from the Democratic Party now, and the Republicans are, um, you know, the beneficiaries of that, and they're not i mean the republicans might shatter a record in the sense that they win an election without ever talking about any policy they're on track to do that that party should be so easy to beat that it's laughable it should be it should be a joke you should trounce them in every single election but because you're so bad at delivering on core promises i mean guys we're 2 years into a raging pandemic we haven't even had a bill proposed, a standalone bill proposed to give people paid sick leave. Every other country has paid sick leave. Certainly every other developed country has paid sick leave. You couldn't do a standalone bill on paid sick leave and do a full court press. And then even if it gets slapped down, then use that as a, a, a political hammer to hit the Republicans over the head with and to hit the obstructionist Democrats over the head with. Just a number of ways in which there's no strategy, there's no vision. There's, there are no goals. It's astounding. I mean, they got to the point with Build Back Better. It was $6 trillion or whatever, and then it was 3.5, and then it was 2.1, and now it's 1.8. And they're at the point where, I mean, Pelosi almost literally said it the other day Look, just have Mansion and Cinema write whatever bill they want, and then we'll fucking pass it. Look at that. Look at how weak and pathetic and sad that is, and, and they're still not giving anything in terms of what they want to pass because they don't want to pass anything because they're massively corrupt. Now, either. You threaten them with uh, you know, litigation. You threaten them with prosecution. You say, look, Merrick is going to go after you. We know the crimes you committed. Manchin, I see what your daughter's done. She's price-fixing and, and price-gouging for, for pharma meds. We're not going to let that stand. You might end up behind bars unless, hey, maybe I look out for you if you look out for me. If you vote for my agenda, you become a hero, and we build a statue to you, and you can get a position in my administration or somebody in your family can get a position in my administration or whatever give you extra infrastructure money for West Virginia, Uh, give you another military base, anything. If you play ball, you're a hero. If you don't, you're public enemy number one and I will ruin your career, and more than that, your life. He doesn't have it in him. He's not LBJ, he's not FDR, and I don't think he really cares that much. I mean, his governing philosophy probably is more in agreement with Manchin and Cinema. so the idea of Manchin and Cinema writing a bill and him signing it, he probably likes more than Bernie Sanders writing a bill and him signing it. So he sort of let them have free reign, and these are the effects of that. He couldn't even get voting rights passed. Couldn't even get voting rights passed. And they were talking about an exception to the filibuster. That's one issue, voting rights. When Republicans wanted to get their Supreme Court pick appointed, they just said, we're done with the filibuster for Supreme Court picks. The Democrats, any piece of their agenda, any piece of their you know, uh, Build Back Better legislation, they're like, we're not going to do any exemptions to the filibuster. We're not going to go back to the talking filibuster. We're not going to abolish filibuster. Nothing. We're just going to sit here and twiddle our thumbs and get blown out in the election like the cucks we are. Well, there you have it. They earned this. You built that, Joe Biden and corporate Democrats. You built this. They will find a way to blame the left. They're already blaming the left. And you, be, you better be here to knuckle up and fight back because uh, we cannot let that narrative yet again be hijacked. It is crystal clear whose fault this is. The so-called centrist Democrats, the corporate Democrats have been in control this entire time. This is their governing philosophy in action. Now it's time for them to own it. Okay, next. On Martin Luther King Day, uh, Stephen Crowder, decided to do a segment on Martin Luther King himself here, and he made some questionable claims, to say the least.
2: So, um, here's something you probably know that uh, MLK, for example, let's start with this, support a peaceful protest. Yes, yeah, uh, that is true. Sometimes. He also had some pretty, I guess you could say, unsavory opinions uh, about riots that I do think need to be considered because a lot of people don't know this part.
0: I continue to say to my brothers and sisters that this is not the way. continue to affirm that there is another way. But at the same time, it is as necessary for me to be as vigorous in condemning the conditions which cause persons to Feel that they must engage in riotous activities as it is for me to condemn riots.
2: I agree with everything that's that's far. I
0: think America <clears throat> must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society, which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. Uh, What is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo. And as long as America postpones justice, we stand in the position
2: of having
0: these recurrences of violence and riots over and over again.
2: See, and that's the problem is the open-endedness to it because, yeah. well, what is justice? Well, right now, people are saying, oh, injustice is there are too many Asians at the Stanford. No. Uh, so let's turn down a Walgreens. Yes, no yes, you need to be a little more specific, and let me be clear, too, at another 1967 speech, and we'll get to the crack whores, and we'll get to the orgies, we'll get to all of that, which hey, is you right. don't know about MLK. <laughs> Five things you don't know about MLK. Bet you, you didn't expect to hear MLK and crack whores. What? Today. I have a dream of non-crack whores at a Motel 6. Nope. no, no, no. <laughs> no I don't think crack exists. You want go <most laughs> I'm probably not. Oh, just oh, just holes and generals in. <laughs> <laughs> so a 67th speech, King said, urban riots are a special form of violence. They are not insurrections. Ah, disagree. The he said, the rioters are not seeking to seize territory or to attain control of institutions, which today they are. That's their stated goal, Black Lives right. Matter. Yeah. They are mainly intended to shock the white community. The looting enables the most enraged and deprived, I'm using his word here, Negro to take hold of consumer goods with the ease the white man does by using his purse. This goes on a lot. If you look at some of his statements regarding riots and regarding violent protest, yeah. it's worse than I thought. I thought he kind of both sides it. He actually more often encouraged violent protesting than he discouraged it, and that is probably disappointing to a lot of people.
1: Now that's a hot take if I've ever heard one. Martin Luther King supported violence and riots more than he supported peace. That's as counterfactual as you can get. I mean, this is a guy, they had rigid discipline uh, when they would do their marches, do their protests, do their sit-ins, and in fact, there was an academic paper that just came out about this not too long ago where apparently researchers found that one of the main reasons why uh, the civil rights movement succeeded in achieving many of the goals is that when you had uh, a group of people, a group of protesters who were pacifists, effectively, and they were committed to nonviolence as a matter of principle, what would happen is you'd get the state violence in reaction to the peaceful protesters were the, you know, Bull Connor and the, the southern states, they would turn fire hoses on these peaceful protesters, sick dogs on them, they would beat them. There would be violence from the state against the peaceful protesters and and the figurehead of the peaceful movement would say, "Look, no matter what, don't fight back. Don't do any violence." What happened was that turned the majority of the American people from hostile to these people who are shaking up the civil order of things to support them. Because it was such a clear, stark example of like, well, it appears like on this side we have pure good, and on this side we have pure evil. So that changed the minds and shifted the opinion polls colossally, where now everybody was sympathetic to the cause of the civil rights movement because they said, look, I mean, they're obviously peaceful, they are, and and there's always been propaganda, reactionary propaganda on this stuff, where they would pretend like, oh, this guy is so violent and and he's the problem, no. I mean, he was a committed pacifist. It was turn the other cheek all day. Oh, you're going to hit me here? Okay, hit me here too. Hit me there next. And so nothing could be further from the truth. And again, this is what uh, academic researchers found. This is one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why the civil rights movement was so successful is it led to real movement on the issues because the majority of the population began to sympathize with these people who were principally committed to nonviolence. Now, by the way, MLK got a lot of crap at the time from uh, people who were way more hardline than him. Like Malcolm X, for example, for a long time would beat up on on Martin Luther King and say, look, this is like cuck stuff here. Are you just going to sit there and take it? That's ridiculous. Um, So when he talks about riots and he talks about the violence, what he's doing is explaining why it happens. He's trying to get people to understand where they come from. They don't come out of nowhere. And in the minds of the reactionaries, they say, look, state violence doesn't count. The reaction to that state violence, which sometimes manifests in violence, that counts as violence. Well, why does it not count as violence when you're forcibly removed from sitting at the same diner counter as white people? That is state violence. It is state violence to have segregation and say, look, don't come over on this side of town or else there's going to be consequences. That's state violence. And... A lot of people just give state violence a pass. It's the same thing when it comes to foreign policy. We talk about this all the time. When you have drone strikes that murder innocent women and children, that counts as terrorism. Just because it's done by the state doesn't mean like you can magically declare, no, now we're going to call it collateral damage because it's done by the state. So therefore it doesn't count for reasons X, Y, and Z. That's nonsense. That's BS. That's intellectually lazy. And so what MLK was doing is he was explaining where the riots come from and why they happen. And so how we can avoid them? It's the language of the unheard. You know, uh, another theory on this, which I'm sure is one that he at least in part uh, agreed with, is this notion that when you look at something like with George Floyd, where he was effectively murdered, well, writers often uh, are coming from this place of, okay, if you guys want to break the law and murder people, well, we could break the law too. Watch this. I'm not in favor of riots. I'm not in favor. I want to avoid violence as much as humanly possible, but an academic explanation as to where it comes from is a logical thing to do so that you can prevent stuff like that from happening in the future. And if you address the injustice at its core and the state violence at its core, there would be less violence in response to that. There would be fewer riots. Man, unbelievable. Look, I'll say this. If Stephen Crowder was back in the 1950s, and he was black, he would be a black nationalist. And you know what? I'm not knocking him for it. I've said this before myself. I think I would have been a black nationalist back then. If I was black and in 1950, I would have been much more attracted to Elijah Muhammad uh, and Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam than I would have been to MLK. Because, you know, look, the only time I think violence is okay is for self-defense. And that was the line that Malcolm X was pushing. I, you know, you should defend yourself, your property, your family, your people, that would have appealed to me. Because when you have official second-class citizenship, state-enforced oppression, responding to that with some semblance of violence, I mean, it was Barry Goldwater, a right-wing presidential candidate who said, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. And that was the, the mindset of black nationalists and black separatists. That's how they thought about it. And they viewed it as a self-defense kind of thing. So I I would have been more attracted to that. I'm sure Steven Crowder would have been more attracted to that. But he's not black, and he wasn't around in the 1950s. So what does he do? He effectively smears MLK on MLK Day. And we know it's a smear. Why? Because he brings up the crack whores and orgies. Uh, Hey, Steven, you sound like a snowflake who's triggered here. I don't care if Martin Luther King had orgies or slept with prostitutes. I don't care about that at all. That has no bearing whatsoever on his political philosophy. And I know Stephen Crowder understands his point. Why? Because there were a million scandals with Donald Trump, whether it's grabbing pussies over here or, uh, you know, sleeping with somebody who they then paid off, maybe with campaign funds over there. There were all these stories. And I, I don't remember Stephen Crowder making a big deal of Donald Trump and his personal private sex life. And I'm consistent on this. You go back and listen to the things I talked about. I, w- I never cared about that stuff. Because that has nothing to do with the governance. That has nothing to do with the policy decisions that you make. That's what affects everybody's life. What you do with your dick is none of my business. Now, if there was a situation where campaign funds were used to pay off women, well, that's a different story because then that's illegal and you're violating people's trust who donate to you and all that stuff. It's fraudulent in a sense. So that I would care about. But in terms of the actual act itself, who cares? I mean, they're, they're, Gandhi may have been like some sort of – child rapist or something does that take away from gandhi's political accomplishments and his his philosophy on that front no it doesn't it makes him terrible in that respect but it has no bearing on the political philosophy so it's a red herring that's the name of the logical fallacy: red herring oh this guy's a hero who tried to usher in uh you know justice and and bring us equality well did you know that he liked to nut who cares Who cares? Who cares? So, God, I mean, it's clear what he's doing here. It's clear what he's doing here. And uh, I was reading the responses he tweeted about it. I was reading the responses. And even a lot of his own people, people who clearly, like, watch him all the time and agree with him, they were like, hey, dog, I don't know what you're doing here, but I don't like it. Don't go after a great man on his day. So there's a little bit – that actually goes to show you why most of the Republicans – Um, tried to embrace Martin Luther King and find the most benign quote of his that they could, like Josh Hawley did that, Lindsey Graham did that. It's like it's old when you can't beat him, join him thing. So what you do is you take the benign quote, you try to sanitize his legacy. You don't talk about the fact that he was in favor of democratic socialism and universal health care and he was against U.S. imperialism and wanted to end the wars and said the U.S. government is the greatest purveyor of violence on earth today. So you ignore the parts that are um, actually edgy, and and more leftist, you sanitize them by using the benign quotes, and then you embrace that legacy and pretend like you're more in favor of MLK than the others. That's the standard right-wing move. I mean, there were private prisons that were quoting MLK tweets and and praising him on the day. Private prisons, that whole industry is built on injustice. Locking people up for profit and then lobbying the government to make more things illegal so you can continue to put asses in bed so you make more money. I mean, it's insane. But this is what people do if they're sophisticated with their propaganda. It's, look, I'm going to lie and pretend like I'm more in favor of him than you are, even though I'm not. But Stephen Crowder didn't have that in him. So I guess in one sense, points for honesty at least. He's like, I'm not going to, you know, pretend like I'm more pro-MLK than you are. I'm actually going to make the argument, well, maybe MLK wasn't as good as you thought he was. How about that? That's amazing. And then final point I'll make is this. There is, there's a lot of debate among academics and on the left in general about the utility of violence. And there's a, so there was that study I pointed out about, hey, here's one of the main reasons why the civil rights movement worked. And it was a principled opposition to violence that made more people sympathetic, which made it eventually, we got to the point where we could pass civil rights legislation and voting rights legislation. But there's a whole other school of thought. And, um, The other school of thought is, look, if you're actually committing violence and you're actually destroying society, will leaders make an effort to try to restore order by doing concessions? And there's also historical evidence of that working, where, you know, the unapologetic, ruthless, um, destructive form of property violence, at the very least, uh, leads people in leadership positions to say, look, I'll do anything to make this stop. So if you want me to make some policy concessions, fine, I'll do it. So there are actually academic reasons and and intelligent arguments in favor of certain forms of political violence. I mean, Noam Chomsky talked about if you, uh, you know, see airplanes or weapons that you know are about to be used on landless peasants in a genocide in Vietnam, and without hurting any human beings, you destroy the planes or you destroy the weapons, dump them in a river or whatever the fuck, uh, isn't, that a, isn't that moral violence? It's moral property violence. And I, I have a hard time objecting to that. How can I object to that? Yeah, if you know it's going to be used in a genocide and you just destroy the weapons, that's violence. Technically, it's property violence. But isn't that the right thing to do to save the lives of the innocent, landless peasants who are about to be massacred? So there are examples of it. So in other words, it's a much more complex and nuanced conversation than Stephen Crowder would ever give it credit for. And, you know, you look at South Africa with Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela was able to go to the white authorities in apartheid South Africa and say, listen, you could deal with me or you could deal with them, them being the people who are riding in the streets and are, you know, scaring the hell out of the white government and are not taking no for an answer. And so it's almost like that good cop, bad cop approach. Maybe Martin Luther King needed Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad and the black nationalists and the black separatists in order for the U.S. government to say, look, we could deal with the, the separatists and the nationalists or we could deal with this guy who genuinely just wants peace and equality. Maybe you need the good cop, bad cop strategy in order to uh, bring about justice. So, in other words, here's my point. Even if MLK was sometimes pro-violence or was mixed on it or, or gave both sides or whatever, even if that was the case, which it's not because he had a principled you know, stance in favor of pacifism and nonviolence, that still would be intellectually defensible. And any honest reading of the situation knows that. Again, Stephen Crowder, you know, all of a sudden, I don't think he'd be uh, against violence Principally, if he was in 1953 and he was black, he would view any sort of violence to stop the state oppression as just and in the cause of liberty and freedom. I mean, he would look at the American Revolution and say, uh, today, he'd look at it and say, well, of course, that was just violence. That was understandable. He would look at World War II and say, well, we were killing Nazis. Of course, that's just violence. Of course. So the, the conversation is a lot more complex and nuanced than he wants to give it credit for. Clearly, the whole point of this segment is just to smear MLK. And I would say mission accomplished, but nobody's really buying his line of BS, so I guess not mission accomplished. Okay, next. Paul Begala has been a Democratic strategist since roughly 1864. Um, He's one of the smuggest insiders ever. And he's going to prove that here. Here he is on CNN. Um, he's asked about, well, you know, if Biden fought for infrastructure, which, by the way, he didn't really. He just happened to get the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed, which is the worst one and the one with corporate giveaways. And Bill Back Better didn't pass, so he didn't really fight for it in any serious way. Um, but there's a question that's posed here. Hey, he fought for that. What's the deal with voting rights? Why didn't he fight just as hard for voting rights? And look at what Paul Begala's response is.
3: Did President Biden put more effort into getting infrastructure
2: passed, for example? Well, he, he got infrastructure passed, and that's a good thing, because success can, can breed success. He is putting the full force of the presidency behind it. I think the problem for the Democrats right now is, is not that they have bad leaders. They have bad followers. And so you know what they did? They organized. These are Andy Young's words. We mobilized the churches, the universities, the labor unions, the business community, a coalition of people who could will. In other words, those of us who want to to save voting rights, we need to get to work. I do think Biden is putting everything behind this, but he needs, he needs better followers, so he needs all of us in the game as well.
1: It's your fault. It's not Biden's fault. It's your fault. You, you should have done more. It's on you. It's not on him. This is the argument. It's the voters' fault. It's the people's fault. It's the organizers' fault. It's not Joe Biden's fault. It's your fault. This is argument. Now, remember, it wasn't that long ago that we saw there were protesters who singled out Kirsten Cinema when she was teaching, and they followed her, and they asked her some tough questions about her obstruction. And what happened when people organized and went directly after the obstructionists? What happened? The entire Democratic establishment and all of mainstream media, and even some nominal leftists, turned around and said, Oh, not like that. That's not polite. That's not polite. That's not civil. You're violating our gentlemen's code of conduct, good sir. We allow people to destroy the country and live in tranquility as they do it in GA. That just happened. That just happened. And now the argument is, well, why didn't, you, why didn't you guys do stuff? We did it, and then we got shit on when we did it. And it's, well, it's not like there's been, you know, no noise in the background that people aren't pushing Joe Biden and the corporate Democrats to do the right thing. Of course they are. It's very clear with the people. What more do you want from the people? For the love of God, look at the fucking poll numbers. I mean, Build Back Better in its original iteration was so powerful that even a majority of West Virginia Republicans supported it. The entire country was in favor of the thing. And by the way, you were elected to do this job of governing. You didn't say, hey, elect me, and then after that, you still have to do everything. No, you're the one who has the power. You're the one who's in a position of power. So when the Democrats won the presidency, the Senate, and the House of Representatives, was your argument at the time, elect us and then we'll sit on our ass cheeks and do Dickie McGee's act? No. It was, look, we're going to fight for you. Well, here's the opportunity. And you didn't. And then you say, well, why did you guys mess this up for us? What? What? I've laid out the strategy in as clear a way as anybody could have from day one. There's a million things Joe Biden could have done to get these people to fall in line. A million things. He needed to play the role of the mafia boss. He needed to do the carrot or stick approach. He needed to say, look, I'll be your best friend or your worst enemy. If you don't do the right thing, well, Merrick Garland's investigating you, and maybe you're going to go to prison because we know all the crimes that you committed. We know all the crimes that your daughter committed, price-fixing for, um, for a pharma company. We know all this stuff, Joe Manchin. Look, you do the right thing, and I'll make you a hero. We'll build a statue to you. Somebody can get my administration. Uh, you know, we can give you another military base in West Virginia. We can give you extra infrastructure money. You will be a hero if you do the right thing. If you do the wrong thing, you might be in prison. Kirsten Cinema, we know you're skirting uh, campaign finance rules. We know it. I mean, you just raised a million dollars from Big Pharma. You used to be in favor of lowering drug prices and ran on it when you were in Congress. Now you're in the Senate, and all of a sudden you're against lowering drug prices. Well, how about we look into that? How about we check all of your campaign finance stuff with a fine-tooth comb and see if we can find some infractions? How about I make phone calls to all the corporations that are thinking of hiring you when you leave here? And I tell them, I'm not saying anything here, but if you end up hiring her, what I will do is go through all of your financial records with a fine-tooth comb and go through your entire company and determine which are the regulations that you're violating and how much you're going to be fined in the process. So there are things they could have done, of course, and he didn't do it. And by the way, even if you say that strategy is too tough, that strategy is too you know, pie in the sky, whatever, at the very least... He could have held events in their respective states when he was popular, when he had a 57% approval rating, and put pressure on them. They could have bought ads in West Virginia and Arizona, running ads, calling him Corrupt Joe Manchin. Call Corrupt Joe Manchin and tell him to do the right thing, because the people of West Virginia support this. They want uh, you know, universal pre-K. They want paid sick leave. They want the child tax credit, so on and so forth. You could have run ads. You could have applied pressure. You could have done this stuff. You didn't do any of it. And now Paul Begala turns around and says, it's your fault. American people. It's your fault, Democratic voters. You're the problem. The idea here at play is the Democratic Party can only be failed. It can't fail itself. It's never the fault of the leaders. It's always the fault of the people. And you wonder why. There's been a colossal shift now to the Republican Party. We just covered the numbers. There's an absolute exodus from the Democratic Party now. Why? Because Biden's not doing anything. He's not – all the pieces of pieces of that legislation, Build Back Better, are just
0: –
1: when all of them are popular. And it doesn't look like Biden has to fight in him because he doesn't. And so what people wanted and what they expected what, versus what they got, of course there's going to be an exodus from the Democratic Party. And a large percentage of these people are probably going to just be apolitical and nihilistic now. But a lot of them are going to go to the Republicans, and that's exactly what's happening. This is the worst, even from just a pragmatic and practical perspective looking at this. Do you want more people to flee from you? Because that's the effect that this has. People are going to watch this and go, oh, it's my fault, motherfucker. It's mine? It's my fault. And the hilarious thing is people like Paul, Paul Bagala are viewed as like, these are the electoral geniuses, the strategists who get Democratic wins. Him and people like James Carville who all he does is punch left, all he does is blame progressives, even when all the evidence shows it's the fault of the corporate Democrats. Every single Democrat who supported Medicare for all won their election. Did, uh, did James Carville stop for a second and look at that and go, hey, hmm, maybe my philosophy is incorrect? No, he just kept blaming the left. So these are the people who are directly responsible for the current way that Joe Biden is governing. This is the philosophy in action. This is neoliberalism. This is the new democratic approach. This is the corporate democratic approach. And everybody hates you. 33% approval rating for Joe Biden, and there's a mass exodus from the Democratic Party. And what does he do? Instead of desperately trying to get out there and make a good argument, he goes out there and says, look, I blame you. I don't blame Joe Biden, I blame you. So if it's not Joe Biden's fault now, is it ever Joe Biden's fault for anything ever? The answer is no, because that's how these guys think. It's this idea that there's an elite class that's above the rest of you, and you just don't understand the brilliance of, of what we're doing here, even though it's not working in any way at all. And so if there is a problem, just blame yourself. It's you. It truly is astounding. It truly is astounding. Unbelievable charlatan. And look, uh, they will do a full court press, full court propaganda press moving forward. It's the left's fault. It's the left's fault. It's the left's fault. The problem is Biden was too bold. And did too much and went too far left, even though arguably the furthest left-wing president in American history, FDR, won four elections and held 80% of the House and 80% of the Senate and got most of his agenda through and died before he could implement his second Bill of Rights, the Economic Bill of Rights. New Deal Democrats are rolling over in their grave right now. FDR is rolling over in his grave right now. This current iteration of the Democratic Party is just the republican light party. They're the diet Republican Party. That's it. That's what they are. And the, that elitist mindset is turns people off so much, and rightfully so. They can't fail. They can only be failed. So look in the mirror. It's always your fault. Hey, you, person whose grandma just died of COVID, Hey, you, person who just lost your job. Hey, you, person who just took a giant pay cut. Hey, you, person who doesn't have health insurance. Hey, you, person who's living paycheck to paycheck. Look in the mirror. This is your fault. It's not the fault of the most powerful person in the world who, by the way, if he wanted to, could break out his executive order pen right now and give everybody health care. It's not his fault. It's not the fault of the guy who can eliminate student loan debt right now and doesn't. It's not the fault of the guy who can legalize marijuana right now and doesn't. It's not his fault. It's your fault. That is a phenomenal message. I'm sure that's going to help big time going into the midterms, Paul Begala, you absolute dipshit. Okay. Next. Next, next, next. Oh, I like this story a lot, this next one. Gary Chambers is um, running for the U.S. Senate. He's in Louisiana. Uh, the guy, I've been interested in this guy for a while. He seems like a really uh, phenomenal guy. And he just released, honestly, uh, sort of like a groundbreaking, iconic ad here. So let's take a look, and then I'll react. Every
2: 37 seconds someone is arrested for possession of marijuana. Since 2010, state and local police have arrested an estimated 7.3 million Americans for violating marijuana laws, over half of all drug arrests. Black people are four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana laws than white people. States waste $3.7 billion enforcing marijuana laws every year. Most of the people police are arresting aren't dealers, but rather people with small amounts of pot, just like me. I'm Gary Chambers, and I'm running for the U.S. Senate, and I approve this message. That was awesome.
1: Imagine, I think back to just, you know, I was born in 1988. Think like if when I was a kid, let's say 1994, 1995. Could anybody imagine that this would be an ad that somebody ran? It's just it's beyond inconceivable. And the polls back then on legalizing marijuana, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I'd imagine it was like 30 percent, maybe 40 percent. It could even be in the 20s. And here we are. This is an issue where we've made tremendous strides in a short period of time, and he releases this ad. So there's a number of reasons why this is just phenomenal. Uh, one of them is, and I was reading a lot of the uh, comments on Twitter about this to see what people felt about it. A lot of people are saying, first and foremost, look, this is relatable because there's a lot of, uh, you know, people, a lot of young people in particular who smoke weed. And so it's relatable in a way that's genuine where people will actually look to a politician and say, hey, maybe they do sort of reflect my values more so than anybody else who I've seen on the political scene. That's one reason why, why it's a good ad. Another one is that it's honest. You know, it's honest. I mean, how many times have we seen – what was it, Bill Clinton? Yeah, I smoked, but I didn't inhale. You had that. um, You have people who try to hide certain aspects of themselves from the public, perhaps not understanding that it's actually a more likable trait if you wear it all on your sleeve, good and bad in some instances. Just wear it all on your sleeve. Any attempt to hide the ball with stuff – I think people – through that, I think people have a uh, unique ability to sort of uh, just intuitively understand who's hiding something and who's not. And this is Gary just letting it all hang out. And then the other thing is, this is, it's a celebration of freedom, effectively, is what he's doing here. And this is an argument that I've been making for a long time on this show. I think that the left should claim the mantle of we're the party that believes in freedom. You know, we... I want you to have maximum freedom when it comes to social issues. You make whatever decisions you want to make with, you know, your own personal life in that respect. And then on the economic front, is somebody really free if they don't have their basic needs and the necessities of life set? And the answer is no. You're not really free if you're up to your eyeballs in medical debt or student loan debt or you're living paycheck to paycheck and maybe you can't pay the light bill this month. That's not really free. You know, It's like you're free to be uh, trapped in an oppressive situation that you can never completely dig out of. Is that freedom? No. Now, you know, I'm not saying everybody gets a yacht and a mansion and a pool in the backyard or anything, but what I am saying is the basic necessities of life being met in a civilized society that can afford to meet those basic necessities of life, yeah, that strikes me as a no-brainer. That strikes me as Uh, an attempt to get towards a true meritocracy where it's actually a a fair playing field where we're all running a 100-yard dash. We all start at the zero-yard line. The way it works in America right now is that some people are born on the 80-yard line of the 100-yard dash, like Mitt Romney's son or Paris Hilton, and then you have people who are starting at the negative 80-yard line. You know, some kid born to a single mother in Harlem, for example. So it's an attempt to get to an actual meritocracy if you meet people's basic needs. So I think, you know, social democratic policies, leftist economic policies, are actually – done in the spirit of freedom. That's freedom. So this is a celebration of freedom. Look, you should be able to put in your body whatever you want to put in your body as long as you're not hurting anybody else. And it's clearly what he's doing is calling for justice as well. Every 37 seconds, somebody gets arrested for this. Well, that's insane. I mean, we have so many states now where it's legal at the state level. At the federal level, it's still illegal. But if it's legal at the state level, we have this weird system where it's like, well, you can kind of do it over here, but you can't do it over here. And some people... Have been locked up in prison for years. Some people have gotten life sentences for nonviolent drug offenses. On what planet does that make sense? It doesn't make sense at all. And so Gary Johnson is is calling attention to that and saying, look, this is unjust. This is makes no sense and I want to be there to fix it. And then also the the ad is just badass. Like the uh, he's wearing a like a fresh suit, sitting there smoking a Fat-ass blunt. I mean, that's a fat blunt dog. If I took one hit off of that, I'd be knocked out on the ground for like three hours, and then I'd wake up and I'd be chilling with Scooby-Doo and having a fist fight with a camel or some shit. Like, I would be wrecked off that shit. But his suit is dope. He's smoking a fat blunt, and he's sitting in that chair in the middle of Louisiana, in the middle of nowhere. I like it. I like that ad a lot. Now, look, he's got an uphill battle in, in Louisiana to win a A U.S. Senate seat in Louisiana, but it's almost like when you have, when you really have nothing to lose and you're fighting an uphill battle, you could almost be more bold and have a more free campaign and express your values more. Because it's like, hey, I'm supposed to lose, right? I'm supposed to lose this thing, so why not? Why not show people who I really am? Why not show them what I really stand for? Why not make a good argument? Why not stand up even harder against injustice? And so in every way, shape, and form, I like this. Uh, Very bold. Very bold for him to do this. Um, Gary Chambers, man. Everybody go check him out. You know, donate if you can. Um, He's a a real one, that's for sure. Okay. Next. Uh Uh-oh. Again with the stupid computer acting up. You know what happens? I think my hands get sweaty. My hands get sweaty as um, as I do the show, and then my like my trackpad on uh, on my laptop just starts rejecting my <laughs> my attempts to use it. So that is truly truly not a good mix if I don't say so myself. All right. Let me do this uh, last one before I take a quick break here. So world number one tennis player Novak Djokovic has been banned from entering Australia for three years. Take a look at this. This is from Tennis World and they say exactly that. He's banned for three years. Um, The backstory to this, we sort of touched on this in a previous segment, but I'll try to run through it again real quick for everybody. What happened was he got, so he was approved from Tennis Australia to come to Australia. Um, Then when he got there, it was sort of a big scandal, and you had, I believe it was the prime minister of Australia was like, no, we're not letting you in. Um, And then, I don't know how long it took, maybe over the course of a day or two or maybe three, uh, he was sort of like in detention to one extent or another. I don't know if he was at a hotel or whatever, some holding facility. Um, And you had a judge overturn what the prime minister said and was like, no, we're actually going to allow him to come in here. This is all over the COVID vaccine. Uh, He was never vaccinated. Now, I'm going to get to more on that in a second, but first let me just give you legally what ended up happening. Uh, So then after the judge overturned what the prime minister said, then you had uh, the top immigration official in Australia uh, said, and this was maybe four or five days after that, uh, the top immigration official says, okay, no, we're, we're revoking your ability to be here. And we're going to kick you out. And I believe it was with that ruling with the top immigration official who was like, and we're also banning you for three years. Okay. So why did all this happen? How did all this happen? Well, Novak Djokovic claimed, I think a medical exemption to getting the vaccine and tennis Australia approved it, but apparently this doesn't jive with the laws of Australia. So the, the prime minister of Australia was like, mm, no. So after Novak got there, that's when he said like, no, you, you got to go. And then it went back, forth, back, forth, back, forth. Um, Novak Djokovic didn't get vaccinated for COVID. Uh, Simply speaking, because Novak Djokovic is anti-vaccine. And he's got all these, I read this crazy article, he's got all these wild beliefs about medicine that are just ridiculous. Like there was a doctor he went to in Serbia where the doctor put bread in one of his hands and his hand went down a little bit. And so he said, ah, you have a gluten sensitivity. And Djokovic was like, wow, I guess I do. He's got all these just, backwards ideas about medicine that are factually incorrect. He's a genuine anti-vaxxer, you know, like he's been brainwashed by all the propaganda and he thinks that the vaccine is is bad for you or whatever. Um, Now, so the medical exemption, I mean, it wasn't, I don't know what he claimed in the medical exemption, but it wasn't like a real medical exemption. A lot of people pointed out, well, hold on now, you're like one of the best athletes in the world. What medical condition do you have where you can't get a vaccine? Um, well, come to find out he actually had COVID not too long ago. And so now there's a scandal around that too, because when he had COVID, he was out in a number of different places doing events, probably spreading COVID. That's incredibly selfish and narcissistic and just you showing no concern for the people around you. Like somebody might die as a result of you giving it to them or you give it to somebody who then gives it to their grandma or something. Right. So that was incredibly selfish uh, on his part. And also, he did lie on his immigration form, where he was like, oh, I haven't been anywhere in the past, like, 14 days or whatever it was. I've been home. Uh, But come to find out, we know because of pictures posted on, I think it was Instagram, that he was actually traveling. So, now, having said all that, it is true he just recently had COVID. may have been a second bout with COVID, too, because he had, during the first wave of COVID, he had some event and people weren't masked up. And this was before the vaccine. And so, we got a lot of crap for that because it was a super spreader event So he had COVID recently, though, and he beat it. Oh, you know, we know he has natural immunity. So I guess effectively in the talks with the Australian government when he was here, he's like, listen, I have natural immunity, so I should be able to play. I'm not really a health risk. And the top immigration official, the prime minister and the top immigration official weren't buying it, and they banned him. And again, they banned him for three years. So listen, my take on this is very simple. From a personal perspective and uh an intellectual perspective i I don't have any respect for novak Djokovic. uh he's wrong you know the vaccine is safe and effective and it gives you 90 percent protection from severe illness hospitalization and death it's also not just about you it's about everybody else and trying to protect other people so he's wrong and i have no problem saying he's wrong and i have no problem saying he's an idiot based on the stuff i read about his, his uh medical views but also gotta keep it real this decision from the australian government has nothing to do with public health at all and anybody who says it does just flat out line that's not true oh it has to do with public health that's why he was banned for three years three years three years no 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 they're they're making an example out of him they're making an example out of him comply get the vaccine or else now my guess is people in australia and I haven't seen a poll on what people in Australia think, so I'm just guessing here. But they've dealt with much more severe COVID restrictions than people in the U.S. and than a lot of people around the world. And in some ways, it's been successful. Um, and, but that sort of hardcore, more authoritarian approach to this stuff, uh, you, if you lived in that country, you'd probably feel like, hey, listen, I, went through, I had to jump through all these hoops. I had to do all these difficult things. I had to you know, quarantine and stay inside and lock down and do all these things for so long. And then you're telling me this asshole tennis player gets to waltz in here after not getting vaccinated and he could just come in here and play no problem and so I think the fear was and and the view from the Australian public probably was and obviously many uh, officials in the Australian government they thought look if we let him in we're going to be viewed as like elitist like making a special exemption for a guy because he's the number one tennis player in the world and that's not fair and so I think uh they wanted to avoid that perception, and so they cracked down on him, and they even over-cracked down on him by banning him for three years. The reason why I don't agree with that is very simple. I think natural immunity should be treated like vaccine immunity. You know? And I do think that's the crux of the question here, because it doesn't matter what you personally think of Novak Djokovic and the way he acted, because I'll grant you every negative thing you want to say, selfish, narcissistic, so on and so forth. Um, but I-, I think there's no reason not to treat natural immunity like uh, vaccine immunity. And so since that's the case... you'd almost have to be like, fine, okay, we're going to let you in, even though we don't agree with uh, what you did here. I I mean, I guess the technicality they can hold on to say, no, we're going to crack down on you is because he lied on his form saying, oh, I haven't been anywhere, and he was somewhere recently. So if if they want to try to get him on that technicality, I guess you have a a somewhat reasonable argument to say you can't come in this year. You know, I I would disagree with it, but at least I see where you're coming from if you make that argument because he lied on the form. But when you say three years, no, no. And another point that people in the Australian government made was, look, this is, he's going to fuel anti-vax sentiment more by doing this. I totally disagree. I think the exact opposite is true. I think now by banning him, especially for three years, you have now made him a martyr. So if you were, wanted to avoid firing up the anti-vax people, mission failed because you just fired them up more now. And if anything, it's even worse because I'm somebody who's staunchly pro-vaccine. And now I'm looking at it like I sort of feel bad for the guy, even though he's a piece of shit three years banned, and by the way, I haven't even brought up the tennis angle of this because it's secondary to the health and government angle of this, but he has 20 Grand Slam championships. He has 20 major championships in tennis. Uh, Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal also have 20 major championships. Right now, they're basically tied in the argument for who's the GOAT. The next one, to, the first one to get to 21 kind of wins that conversation in an, maybe an undisputed way, at least until the end of all of their respective careers, and we know who truly is the GOAT. you want to take one of the majors off of, uh, you know, the possibility for him for three years? For three years. I, I think that's way too punitive. I do. Look, again, I'll repeat it. They have a reasonable argument, one I don't happen to agree with, but they had a reasonable argument to say, look, you lied on your form, and so therefore we're not letting you play this year, okay? I still wouldn't have anything to do with public health because he has the natural immunity, but at least you have a argument. I could see your perspective. You say this year, no. But three years? Nah, 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 nah. That's super dickish and very authoritarian. And it has absolutely nothing to do with science and nothing to do with public health. I can very confidently say I don't like Novak Djokovic personally based on the things that I've read throughout this whole saga. But I could also very comfortably say he should be allowed. In my, in my opinion, he should be allowed to play this year and the next two years. And I know... I might be taking, this might be a controversial stance among my audience because most of my audience, thankfully, is very pro-vaccine, but you've got to be willing to separate the conversation about the vaccine and vaccine efficacy and how well it works and all that stuff from a conversation about the policy surrounding it and what truly is about health and what's not about health and so on and so forth. And it's more complex and nuanced than a lot of people want to give it credit for, but I think this is way too punitive, and I feel bad for the asshole, if I'm being honest. Okay. All right. Let's take a break. When we come back, I got a lot more for you. Dan Crenshaw snaps and yells at a 10-year-old. Absolutely hilarious. (laughs) Stay right there, guys. We'll be right back. You're back, bitch. Welcome back to the show. Let's keep it going. Dan Crenshaw, congressman, was doing some sort of an event, and uh, there was a Q&A going on, and a girl, a little girl, asked him a question. And um, he snapped at her and started yelling at her and uh, kind of berating her. Let's take a look at that video and then laugh at it. glorious uh so she's quoting him when he was on a podcast and he said something that was uh, effectively like uh people need archetypes they need like leaders and people to look up to you know there's jesus There's there's superman or there is ronald reagan <laughs> hilarious but uh see now the marjorie taylor green types and matt gates types and lauren boebert types are uh they're mad at him and their followers are mad at him because he keeps taking shots at them because he's jealous of their, you know, stardom on the right. And so that's where this question came from. I have no doubt that 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 young girl, and I've seen the article in The Independent said she's 10 years old, but I have no doubt that she likes those people. And so she did go to this event saying, yeah, I'm I'm, going to get Matt Gaetz. And so she's effectively like, I don't know if you heard it at the beginning. She said, you not only lied about Jesus not being real, but you lied about being a Christian. And then Matt Gaetz is like, put a period after Jesus and don't question my faith. And then he goes on. You saw him there. He's like, of course. Of course Jesus is real. Of course Jesus is the son of God. I love, I love the fights that happen on the far right. I love them. It just shows the difference, man. What's the fight, What's the fight on the so-called far left? I'm in favor of Medicare for all, you know, or there's a politician who's not in favor of it, and there would be a hard question from somebody who's like, you should be in favor of it. We need to catch up to the rest of the world and give everybody health care. Look at the fight they're having. Of course Jesus is the son of God. Of course, he, of course he's real. It's just so unserious. But look, Dan Crenshaw knows that on, that, on the right, you can't say that you don't believe in Christianity. And you don't believe in Jesus. Because to them, that's a deal breaker. That's a litmus test for them. Do you believe in my fairy tale? Do you? Are you with my fairy tale? I know there's over 4,000 religions in the world. But I happen to be born into the right one. Because my mommy and daddy told me it was the right one. Do you believe in the same one my mommy and daddy told me about? Please say you do.
0: <laughs>
1: and this isn't just a 10-year-old girl. This, is Everybody in that room is like, oh. Are you not a Christian? Are you one of the heathens? Is that what you are? It's so, like, it's so unserious. But by the way, he easily could have handled that question with much more grace. Look, any politician who's clever, who's witty, who's smooth, who's persuasive, I mean, it's, it's like a, like a jujitsu match or a boxing match. Like, you've got to roll with the punches, bro. So you've got to be like, look, thank you for asking that question. That allows me to clarify my position. And uh, my position is Jesus is the son of God. Uh, I'm a Christian. I've been my entire life. I have a a deep faith. Um, But there are times when people are younger or perhaps they're raised in different religions where they do need archetypes to look up to. And that's why I gave those other examples. That's why I talked about Superman. That's why I talked about Ronald Reagan. Um, But me personally, for me, it's always been Jesus. That's all you have to say, bro. He snapped. Here, I'll help you put a period at the end of Jesus and don't question my faith. That's a little girl, dog. That's a little, you're going to get into a a, a verbal altercation with a little girl. And by the way, she stood by, she stuck by her guns. She was like, nah, I know, I saw what you said, dog. I saw what you said. You can't get out of it now. So look, if she's going to be an asshole, let her be an asshole. She's a little girl. But you got to roll with the punches. It's not even about talking to her. It's about talking, com- communicating your message to everybody else in the room. But look, even if he answered like that, I'd still be making fun of him. Why? Because of the whole, like, like, you have to pledge allegiance to the, you know, bearded hippie who lived thousands of years ago, maybe or maybe not. And, of course, none of these people, like, these people, the philosophy and ideology of Jesus in the New Testament and all, of, like, the pacifism and stuff like that. Is that what these people in this room are? Are they pacifists? Are they in favor of looking out for the poor like Jesus was? No, no. There's a giant gulf between, you know, what their political beliefs are and who they claim is their, their Lord and Savior. You know, that guy would have definitely... Who would Jesus have denied health care to? Serious question. Nobody. What, how many wars would he want to fight? Would Jesus be pro our 900 military bases? and giving weapons to 73% of the world's dictatorships. Is that what Jesus would support? No, no, I don't think so. Jesus, this is so silly. But he's right, I, look, I do, I, I'm not gonna lie to you guys. I sort of wanna go to one of these events, one of these like Q and A things with Republican Congress people, just to feel that, that room a little bit, just to get the sense of that room. Cause yeah, they have red lines around like Christianity and Jesus and all sorts of silly stuff and Trump. And um, it's just such a different feel. And these, I mean, Crenshaw made a mistake, man. He made a mistake when he decided to pick a fight with Lauren Boebert and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, all like the really loud and aggressively stupid people on the far right that are getting a lot of press, because the far right base loves them solely on the basis of the fact that mainstream media attacks those people all the time. And when Crenshaw goes after them, even though Crenshaw is going after them from the right and saying, you're not conservative enough, look at your voting record. They don't care because they don't really care about policy, these people. They just think now Crenshaw's with the libs and he's helping the mainstream media because he's going after people who we like. So, look, you made your bed, Dan Crenshaw, and now you're going to sleep in it. What's so amazing about him, all he wants in this world is to be beloved by these people. And he, at some point, he probably wants to become president. That's all he wants in this world. But he just doesn't have the chops because he fails the most basic test of a politician. He doesn't, he's not chari- there's no charisma, he's not likable, he doesn't have that X factor. He has anti-charisma. He has anti-charisma. So, like, you just, he's one of those guys, and when you talk, you're just like, I don't like you. <laughs> doesn't he, he can he actually be saying things that might even be true, and people just listen, like, I don't like your vibe, bro. I don't like it at all. I, I'm going to go away, if I don't like you. He's just one of those people, man. One of those people with, with that quality. It's very weird. Communication stuff is is very strange. Like, nonverbal stuff is is so important, and just the vibe and the feel and the energy you get off somebody is so important. And he just fails miserably on that test. And this is such a great example of it here. You couldn't even roll with the punches with a 10-year-old coming after you, son? Please. Okay, next. Let me see if I have... uh... I think I have some notes for this next one. Let me take a look. I don't have notes for this one? Hold on. Oh, it's in the, okay, my bad. My bad, here we go. Perhaps you will be unsurprised to learn about this new thing from Axios. Distrust in political, media, and business leaders sweeps the globe. So I'm going to give you some more specifics on it in this article. People also don't think media or business leaders are telling them the truth, and this suspicion of multiple special institutions is pushing people into smaller, more insular circles of trust. Government leaders and journalists are considered the least trustworthy societal leaders, according to Edelman's Uh, New 2022 Global Trust Barometer, a survey of 35,000 respondents across 28 countries. A majority of people globally believe journalists, 67%, government leaders, 66%, and business executives, 63%, are, quote, purposely trying to mislead people by saying things they know are false or gross exaggerations. Around the world, people fear the media is becoming more sensational for commercial gain, and the government leaders continue to exploit divisions for political gain. People who live in democracies are quickly losing trust in those democracies while trust in authoritarian regimes in China, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia, for example, is increasing among people who live under them. Wow. As trust in democratic institutions wanes, there are also growing doubts about capitalism, developed democracies specifically lack economic optimism per the survey. A trust gap has also increased between wealthy and low income populations. As people become more skeptical of institutions, they are increasingly leaning into closer circles of trust. Throughout the pandemic, survey respondents say trust in people from other countries and people who live in other states, provinces or regions has gone down, while trust in neighbors and coworkers has increased. Yeah, see, this is... um, I mean, look, it's a good sign of the current decline of not just the American empire, but the decline of the West more generally, because as you become more skeptical of everything, your circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And now you're just at like friends, neighbors, and coworkers. It's the only people you trust. There's basically no big institutions that you trust. And listen, that's totally reasonable and understandable. Uh, In fact, it's something I myself feel, of course, because nobody's looking out for you among the group. They listed what business leaders have, you know, your concern in mind, what business leaders, do corporate CEOs care about you? No. They care about, like, making their workers' wages lower and, uh, you know, padding the bottom line with more profit by any means necessary. Uh, are politicians looking out for you? No. This is why the approval rating in Congress goes back and forth between, like, 7% and 25% when it's at its highest, because everybody knows they're not representing us. You know, this is... Everybody's on to the game. They might not know all the specifics, but there's this intuitive sense that people get. Like, they're not looking out for us. And there was that study from Princeton years ago that came out, which found that uh, there's basically no correlation between the policies Americans want and what we end up getting. And the direct connection is between what the elite want and what they end up getting, whether it's corporations or billionaires. So the donor class gets what they want. And there's no correlation between what the people want and what we end up getting. Why would you trust politicians under that circumstance? They're wearing it on their sleeves, how bad they are. It's an oligarchy, it's a kleptocracy. That's what we're currently living in. That's what it is functionally. Forget on paper. Forget what it nominally is. Has it actually functioned? Like an oligarchy, like a kleptocracy. So and then the media, don't even get me started on the media. There's so many problems with mainstream media. I mean, it's endless. So just take the big network, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. CNN and MSNBC are biased in favor of the democratic establishment. Now, don't get it twisted. Some people misinterpret that as, oh, they have a left-wing bias. That's not a left-wing bias. A left-wing bias would be a bias in favor of left-wing policies, such as raising the minimum wage, more unions, universal health care, ending wars, so on and so forth. They don't believe those things at all. They view their job as to give people roughly what's happening in the world, but then also defend the Democratic establishment. That's what they do. Now, Fox News defends the Republican establishment. So you have incredibly biased and partisan news and defense of the status quo and business as usual and the establishment. On Fox News, it's for the Republicans. On CNN and MSNBC, it's the Democrats. And then you have you know local news, for example, which generally does have higher trust than national news. But even at the local news, what do they do? They just scare you about like petty crime that's going on in your area. There's no big talk of systemic problems. There's no talk of, um, you know, national trends that are way more important that affect your life way more. It's just, you know, be scared of the convenience store getting robbed or whatever the hell it is. So you have all these institutions, none of them are looking out for you. And then the thing on sensationalism, well, that's obviously true. That's why you see, you know, they'll, they'll talk about something with Trump that has nothing to do with anything because it, it'll get clicks or they'll bring up Kim and Kanye West because that'll get clicks, you know? So, there are all these different biases that mainstream media has. And everybody's seeing it more now because there's been some very egregious examples of it recently, you know? And look, this isn't to say, for example, that Joe Rogan has, uh, you know, that I agree with him on COVID stuff. I definitely don't. I have many disagreements with him on COVID stuff, and perhaps him and I will get into that uh, whenever the next time is that I'm on his show. But like when they did the whole, Joe Rogan took horse paste, took horse medicine, that's just not true. That's not true. He took the human version of ivermectin. Now, granted, ivermectin has massively mixed results for how effective it is with treating COVID-19. And, uh, but they, were, they could have said that. They didn't say that. They said, oh, he's taking horse medicine. Well, a lot of people looked at that, and they were like, you're trying to portray this in the most negative light possible because you don't like this guy. That's not honest. It's not. And so the distrust is absolutely positively earned. It's earned. You should distrust these people. And then new media, listen, I'm part of new media. I'm part of independent media. So I have every reason in the world to try to, you know, bolster this uh, field. And in many ways I do feel like we do a much better job than others. But new media comes with its own baggage as well, and that's obvious. Because for every good person – doing good work in new media there's a charlatan pushing some bogus narrative and getting millions of views and so there's ups and there's downs to new media as well but people don't know who to trust where to look and all that stuff anymore and they're not wrong they're not wrong to feel that way the interesting part is the trust in the authoritarian regimes growing stronger now why is that my guess is, and I don't know, you'd have to do more academic research on this to figure out the real reasons and maybe more opinion polls, you'd get a much better sense of it. But my guess is that in authoritarian countries, um, since there's like total control, they're able to make changes and implement things way more effectively and efficiently. And so, cause there isn't the messiness uh, that we have in this country, for example, like our institutions, I mean, The only thing that's still functioning are, like, the Fed pumps trillions of dollars into corporate America whenever the hell they want. That's still working. And then the judiciary does more legislating than, like, Congress and the executive branch does. Okay, so those are the things that are working. Um, Everything else is just messy, and it goes nowhere, and you're always in gridlock. But when it comes to authoritarian regimes, they could just decide, we're going to do this thing, and then they just do it. And so, effectively, if the trains are running on time, as the old saying goes, and in these countries they are – people are going to feel like, well, we got everything more or less under control over here, and we're doing okay. And this, look, the standard of living. Uh, look, I have many criticisms of China, and I can get into all of them. But the fact of the matter is, um, they are li- people are being lifted out of poverty right now. There, There is an, an upward trend that's currently happening. So when you live in a country that's more or less improving year after year, people are going to feel like, oh, yeah, I have more trust in these leaders. So a lot of hard lessons in here for the West. And I don't think they're going to learn them. I don't think they're going to course correct. It's kind of weird looking at the inevitable decline happen in real time, knowing there's almost nothing we can do to stop it. We've got to try our best. We've got to try to fix the system. We've got to try to bring back a, a robust functioning uh, social safety net and welfare state. We have to try to end the wars and, uh, you know, untangle the imperialism and all that stuff. But it's strange watching it happen in real time, the drastic decline of an empire, And that's exactly what's happening and these numbers are reflecting it not just in the u.s but all in the western world people have no trust in the institutions because they shouldn't final thing look is a great example how many times did the cdc and the fda and the authorities get stuff wrong i mean fauci early on was saying no don't use masks you don't need to use what they mocked the idea of the lab leak theory early on it was considered misinformation then we learned hey that's actually probably the most likely thing that happened they just came out and admitted uh hey Cloth masks don't really work that well. The, the N95s do, and KN95s are a little worse than the N95s, but they're better than the cloth. But the cloths don't work that well. They just admitted that now. We're two years into the pandemic. Rand Paul said something like that, and then he was banned from one of the social media outlets because he said the cloth mask, mask thing when the study had come out originally, which is a while ago. So, yeah, people are losing trust because it's so clear. Nobody's steering the ship. Nobody knows what they're doing. And that's just such a clear example of it. With everything that happened with COVID and with the messaging screw ups and the lack of leadership and our our decentralized healthcare system led to our worst possible reaction to this pandemic. Any place that has a centralized healthcare system fared way better than we did because we're so decentralized and and, and fractured and, and factionalized that when you make a change, it doesn't necessarily get to all the places it needs to get to. So there you have it. The distrust is earned and that's obvious. All right. Oh, this is a good one. This is a good one. You guys are going to get a kick out of this. So There's an article that came out in the Washington Post. Um, The title is a year ago, Biden unveiled a 200 page plan to defeat COVID. He has struggled to deliver on some key promises. You don't say you don't say. So they just launched a uh, free testing thing. There are caveats to just how free it is and who it's free for and all that stuff. Only people with private insurance supposed to be free for. Um, but they may have changed that because you were able to go on a website and just click and get it sent to your house. So I don't know. Maybe they did change it. If they did, that's a good thing. But think about how late this is. Two years into the pandemic, just now you're doing free tests. Other, other countries have been doing it for such a long time now. We also just learned we're going to ship out 400 million N95 masks. Okay, good. But again, too, a little too late going on here. Um, So, yeah, of course he failed to deliver on a lot of his COVID promises. We had the Omicron surge; there was a giant spike. They didn't prepare in advance. They didn't have enough of a stockpile of like the uh, monoclonal antibodies. Apparently, only one of the three types actually worked against Omicron. There was no stockpile of that, so we had a shortage of it. That I. To my knowledge, they didn't stockpile Remdesivir or any of the other sorts of drugs that are absolutely necessary. They didn't invoke the Defense Production Act to uh, take over testing early on and and get a giant stockpile. So in so many ways, they failed. In so many ways, they failed. Um, But there's a line in this piece that just blew my mind. So they literally say this, quote, Asked what they've learned from year one. Biden officials said, they'll largely stick to the same game plan in year two. You're going to stick to the same game plan in year two? You're going to stick? When he did the $1,400 checks, he had a 57% approval rating. Since then, he hasn't done much of anything, except the things I just described, which he just did, you know, deep into the pandemic. His approval rating is now 33%. 33%. And they say, yeah, we're going to stick to the the game plan. The game plan of getting no legislation through and signing no executive orders that would make your approval rating go up and would help the American people, that game plan? Look, guys, it's just – it's getting – it's tiresome at this point. I want to show you – take a look at this. This is uh, where he's at on all the different issues. From polling USA, Biden's net approval in, in handling inflation, minus 40, immigration, minus 28 issues around policing, minus 24, Afghanistan, minus 24, economy, minus 23, crime, minus 22, race relations, minus 14, info about COVID, minus 4. CBS YouGov poll January 14th, 2,000 people. He's underwater in everything, in everything. Even the one where we gave him credit on Afghanistan, his approval rating on that was the best of all the individual issues until... He kept the sanctions on them, and now they're starving millions of people, literally. And uh, he dropped right back down, minus 24. He was weathering the storm of the media propaganda, and Afghanistan was his best individual issue because he pulled out of there. But then he did the sanctions, in, which is killing people, and everybody he plummets again. Because, of course, you're going to plummet because you're starving an entire country. We're going stick to stick to the same path. That's what we're going to do. So you want to lose in perpetuity. Listen, I said it the other day. I mean, Biden made this comment about polling. Like, yeah, sometimes your polls go up. Sometimes they go down. It is what it is. What are you going to do? And I remember listening to that thinking, that's not how it works at all. You have to do stuff to make the polls go up and down. There is a logical reaction or somewhat logical reaction from the population to your actions as president. When you cut $1,400 checks, you were at 57% because you cut the $1,400 checks. Now, since you haven't done anything, it's tanking. Now, since your agenda is getting blocked in 47 different ways and you don't know how to fight back, it's tanking. Since you haven't signed an executive order that would actually improve lives, it's tanking. And it's going to stay down unless you actually do stuff. So go ahead. Stick to your same path. um, And then inevitably, blame the left when you get blown out because that's exactly what's coming. There's a televangelist by the name of Kenneth Copeland, and this guy is really something special. This, he is one of the bigger scam artist televangelists that there are, right up there with Jim Baker, who's actually a convicted criminal. Um, he unironically made a claim on his show about how he's such a victim, how he's persecuted. Here's the reason why.
0: to incur a lot more
1: persecution just by two airplanes. I'm so damn persecuted. I got my two airplanes and people don't like it. People come after me like I did something wrong. Did I do anything wrong by getting two airplanes? Yeah. Yeah. This is This is what's called the prosperity gospel. There's a number of preachers in the prosperity gospel genre. And the whole idea that they push out there is Jesus wants you to be rich. Jesus effectively loves capitalism and wants you to be rich. And wants you to grind and work hard. It's like hustler culture mixed with Christianity. It is incredibly toxic as it flips the message of Christianity directly on its head. This idea of pacifism and looking out for everybody around you and and loving your neighbor and and you know the poor are the blessed ones and you know the old saying about camel uh can get through an eye of a needle before a rich person can get to heaven It, it flips that totally on its head and it's like actually being rich is awesome and blessed and jesus if he were here today he'd be bling the fuck out dog he'd be wearing white gold and platinum he'd have rims on an Escalade. He'd have two airplanes. Bro, one wasn't enough. One wasn't enough for you, Mr. Televangelist guy. One wasn't enough. One wasn't enough. He said, okay, previously, I didn't queue this video up. Perhaps I should have. But you guys might remember the story. He talked about when he was trying to get either the new airplane or just get a airplane. I don't know if it was his second or his first one that he was talking about. But he was begging for donations and he was like, look, I travel all over the world, and I, and I go give speeches because I'm, I'm a televangelist, I'm a preacher, and you got to help me out here because I don't want to be in a tube full of demons by flying public. A tube full of demons? Yeah, that sounds exactly like some stuff Jesus would say. All these random strangers? Demons. Demons. I'm the good one. I mean, this is elitism masquerading as Christianity. That's what this is. Elitism masquerading as holiness. Look, I'm the angel. I'm on a tube with demons. You've got to help me out, guys. Give me money, give me money, give me money. Look, if, you, if you're in a Christian organization and you're actually abiding by that message, um, you would just give all food to the poor. You know, Every dollar you raise, you just try to give all food to the poor and um, just help people who are in a bad place. But he's, how many millions of dollars did he spend on two airplanes? Do you have any idea how much it costs just to upkeep on those planes? Because you've got to do all the mechanical and technological stuff. That needs to be monitored all the time. You need to have a pilot and, like, the, the amount of upkeep for having a plane. Homeboy's got two planes. Who the hell is watching this dude and is like, that's my boy right there? That's my boy. Here, man, take my money. Jesus wants you to have a third plane now. I don't understand how in the year 2022 guys like this still make it, but they do. I mean, Pat Robertson had a pretty devoted following among, you know, geriatric people. Uh, And I'm sure this guy, I'm sure it's all older people who listen to him too. But, I mean, I guess the upside of the story is this stuff is dying out. This stuff is just fodder for laughter for young leftists who are like, seriously? So scammy. Every part of this is just so scammy. My God. You want to be persecuted just by a couple airplanes? Because, yes, who's more persecuted than somebody with two airplanes? The persecuted are not, say, the roughly 500,000 homeless people in America, the tens of thousands of homeless veterans in the United States of America, the innocent people dying overseas because of our endless wars going on, the 80% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, the half of working people who make $30,000 a year or less, the 30 million Americans without health insurance, the people who are going bankrupt for medical bills, these aren't persecuted people. These aren't persecuted people. People in Yemen who are currently undergoing a genocide because of Saudi Arabia and the weapons that we give them. They're not the persecuted ones. They're not. It's, uh, It's me, Mr. Televangelist with two airplanes. I mean, look at what we're doing to Afghanistan. We're starving an entire country in Afghanistan. Millions of people starving because of our sanctions. He's whining because some people online are like, hey, man, kind of fucked up. You have two planes, dog. Maybe you should spend that money in a way that maybe Jesus would. Nope. I I really wonder, do these people know that they're scam artists? Did he get into this with good intentions originally? Like, yeah, I want to spread the message of Jesus or whatever in a perverse prosperity gospel kind of way. Does he actually think that that's the message of Jesus? Did he get into it with good intentions and then this ended up happening? Or from the very beginning, was he like, time to scam some people. Let's do it. That that next level degree of shamelessness is something I can never wrap my mind around to be that shameless. Cause I don't know how he sleeps at night. I don't know how he sleeps at night. I have no idea. I don't know, but clearly he sleeps feeling like a victim because God forbid there'd be some mean comments about his two airplanes when he's supposed to be preaching the message of Jesus. So here we have uh tomato Lorenzo going on Fox News and um, what you're going to get here is uh, a tutorial in right wing propaganda. This is a master class in right wing propaganda. See the issue here is going to be with just the premise of the conversation where you'll see the whole underlying assumption is like well obviously Democrats are pro violent crime. You know rape murder things of that nature. They look at that and they go, yay, right on, or we shouldn't even arrest those people. This is gonna be the whole framework of the conversation is built on that foundation. So let's take a look and then I'll come back and respond.
2: Tommy, Larry, Tommy, look, the people of California going to that poor UCLA grad student who was murdered, they vote for leftists that create policies that allow things like this to happen. When are the people of California going to wake up and stop voting in these people? Well,
3: listen, Todd, every bad idea of at least the last five years has originated in New York, California, or New York, and that's no coincidence. Those two states also provide a perfect example of what happens when you allow one-party Democrat rule, and it's a case that, you a cautionary tale, and it's especially when you look at the lawlessness and the soft-on crime, soft-on criminals, soft-on sub-policies that are formed and fomented in both those states. You know, I lived in California for several years, and I saw this firsthand. I decided to leave the state when I realized that all so of Residents seemed more startled by seeing a conservative like myself in the flesh than they were seeing an addict light up a pipe in a yogurt land. I also saw that firsthand. But as you said, Todd. If the people of California and New York want to make changes, they have to start with the way that they vote. Nothing is going to change until you decide to vote for either moderate Democrats who believe in law and order and protecting decent people, or you vote for Republicans that I know are certainly about law and order and protecting and preserving the rights of law-abiding Americans in their cities and their states. But they're going to have to make big changes. They also have an opportunity in both those states To be a case study of what happens when you change your vote and you make big changes to not only your politicians but your felon coddling policies. Something needs to change before it's too late. These
2: numbers, Tommy, are astounding. LA crime from 2019 to 2021, homicides up almost 54 percent, shooting victims up 54 percent. And I think we both know the area where this UCLA grad was murdered. It's a nice area, it's a Fairfax district. I used to live right around the corner. I always felt safe, I was there for four, four and a half years. Should anybody feel safe in a blue city going forward?
3: I think that this is also where you're gonna to start to see some big changes. It's one thing when this impacts the ghettos and the inner cities, it's another thing when it impacts nice areas. And that's sad to say, because that shouldn't be the case every American should be safe on their cities, in their cities, and on their streets. But that's not the case in places like California. And I think the Democrats, and especially these activist DAs, need to be asked, what is your motivation for being soft on criminals and soft on crime? What is it? Why are you motivated to protect the, the, the lowest denominator of human being in your cities and your states, and why are you not protecting the law-abiding Americans that look to government for nothing else but protection? Democrats need to answer for that. They're going to have to answer for it in midterms. I wish it didn't take an election cycle to make big changes, but unfortunately, sometimes it does. We have a big opportunity to make big changes, and that comes in November.
1: Who looked at this instance of a murder and said, you know what, let the guy go? Nobody did that. Nobody is pro-murder. No left DA Sits back and goes, all right, boys, we're going to allow murder from now on. Does that sound good? All agreed? All agreed. Okay, good. Murder is now legal here. De facto legal murder here. Everybody wants to go after a murderer. Everybody does. Everybody does. But you see what they do? It's, they just imply, well, obviously the Democrats are pro-murder because a murder happened in a democratic state. So these soft on crime DAs are not doing their job. Anybody could pick an individual crime in a red state and then turn around and go, these Republicans are stopped on crime because a murder happened. Vote in uh, uh, the Democrats, please. It's just a totally dishonest conversation. Now, what's the root of the problem here? The root of the problem here is very simple. You have extreme poverty and degradation that then leads people to commit crimes. Now, I'm not saying every crime is a result of poverty and degradation. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of criminals who are pathological. And so even if they are effectively well-off, they commit the crimes. Look at a lot of guys on Wall Street for that one, okay? Uh, but a lot of the crimes, particularly for the, the, the destitute, the people who are really not well-off at all and can't survive, a lot of those crimes are because of extreme poverty and degradation and a system that doesn't have a functioning social safety net to make sure that the bottom isn't so low that people turn to desperate measures which end up being incredibly unethical, immoral, and illegal for a reason. Okay, so just one example. Oxfam came out with a report. Billionaires during the pandemic gained five trillion dollars in wealth. Five trillion. As everybody else is losing ground at an alarming rate, That's going to lead to more social instability. Of course it is. Of course it is. When people, not only do people not have a fraction of the pie, they only have crumbs. Yes, that's going to lead to a spike in crime. There are macroeconomic factors and sociological factors which lead to an increase in crime. Now, in this particular instance, with a murderer, Perhaps this guy was, you know, uh, not only has a history of violence, but maybe paranoid, schizophrenic or something like that. So I'm not making a claim about this particular murder because I don't have any of the details about this particular murder and the guy's mental state, so on and so forth. But this notion of just connecting Democrats to being pro-crime or allowing crime is absurd. The argument I've always made on this show is, yeah, I, I am a law and order guy. I'm tough on crimes, but only crimes that I think should actually be crimes. So this murderer, i throw the book at him. I'm sure they are going to throw the book at him. But, yeah, when it comes to stuff like uh, the drug war, legalize all the drugs, free all the nonviolent drug offenders. That's called personal freedom. Put in your body whatever you want to put in your body as long as you're not hurting anybody else. And guess what? Joe Biden is uh, pro-drug war. And it's not like, well, you know, we waged the drug war, and so now – we succeeded and defeated crime. No, because we still have the drug war going on and we have a crime wave. Maybe that's not the issue. So only be tough on crimes that should actually be crimes. Here's one, for example, war crimes, the Iraq war, which almost all of our politicians voted for. There's something that's absolutely criminal. I'd be tough on that crime. I'd be tough on the crime of the U.S. sanctioning medicine going into Iran. Now, I believe in international law and order, too. Apparently... Uh, Tommy Lauren and many on the right, don't. They want us to be able to do whatever we want, violate whatever law we want, and it's okay because we mean well. No, I don't agree with that. But listen, when it comes to murder, rape, assault, crimes that should actually be crimes, I'm fine with throwing the book at people. I'm fine with being tough on crime. Um, But when it comes to nonviolent offenses, when it comes to drug crimes, no, free those people. But really, if you want to reduce the crime rate, what you need to do is address the root problems here. If we implemented a, a social democratic program and people had healthcare, people had college, homeless people had a roof over their head, and we had um, on top of just healthcare for everybody, you also have mental health care for everybody so people can get their medicine, get counseling and things of that nature. If we set up a system where the bare necessities of life are met, then of course crime is going to drop incredibly fast. Of course it is, because there's not as many desperate people, and it's not like there's nowhere to turn. And now a lot of people feel like there's nowhere to turn. Again, this conversation is slightly different from a, a cold-blooded murderer. You have to look at the cases. You have to look at the specific case to get the information on that to determine what exactly happened. But broad macroeconomic and sociological trends can absolutely, if you if you address them properly well, then you'll have a reduction in crime. But they're not interested in that conversation. They're interested in cheap, political, partisan gain. And that's what this is. That's exactly what this is. This is just blame the Democrats because there was crime, and so vote in Republicans. Well, Republicans are not going to address the uh, social conditions and the economic conditions. So they're not going to get to the root of what causes the crime. And um, they're also going to be unfairly and in an anti-freedom authoritarian way lock up the nonviolent drug offenders. So... Forgive me if this uh, pitch is not persuasive. It's not persuasive to anybody with an IQ above 80. Let's go back to Trump now. President Trump uh, spoke to Newsmax, which is, you know, one of the the top two most right-wing so-called news outlets in the country. It's Newsmax and One American News. Um... He's actually asked a decent question here from the interviewer, very straightforward policy question. Hey, when Republicans get control, what's the number one policy issue that you guys are going to uh, push for? Look at his answer.
2: i like Republicans are going to take back control of the Congress, and what would you like to see them do first? What should be priority number one if they do take back control? Number one, take back. That's what has to be number one. We have to take it back. These are radicalized, horrible people that hate our country, what they're doing with the open borders and the judges, and all of the things they've been doing are so sad. And then you look at Afghanistan as a dopper, the way they came out. We were coming out, and we were coming out strong with dignity. There's never been a lower point than what happened with uh, Afghanistan, in my opinion. So we've got to, number one, we've got to win the House, and I think we can win the Senate also. We should win the House maybe handily, and I think we should win the Senate.
1: Not a single policy was mentioned. Not a single answer was given. Well, first, you got to win, got to win the House, got to win the Senate. You know, you look at what's happening now, it's terrible. They got open borders so bad. Biden is deporting more than Trump did. Mm-hmm. Biden is using Title 42 and saying, hey, we have a pandemic, so people don't even get through process, just ship them out immediately. He's already deported more than Trump has. Mm-hmm. Biden is being just as Trumpy on the border as Trump, if not more Trumpy. So when they say uh, open borders, on what planet? He's kept a- another... Trump policy he kept in place, remain in Mexico. But he's asked, what's your first policy thing that you guys would do? And he just rambles about, we got to win. Winning is good. I don't like what's going on with the open borders. Um, Afghanistan, look at what happened with that. It was a mess. Well, hold on. He's talking about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. That's the thing that you only said you would do, but you didn't do. Biden actually followed through and did it. You should be thanking him. You should be saying, hey, man, awesome. You implemented the policy that I said I wanted. You talk about getting out of Afghanistan, but now all of a sudden it's, well, if I got out, it would have gotten out in a way that was more better and we had, more, you know, things happening that weren't bad things because I don't like bad things. I like good things, and there were very, very bad things that were happening, and so therefore, you know, I don't, I don't like what happened. Whether it's Trump that got out or Biden or Obama or anybody or whatever, whoever the next president is, it would have imploded because that's just – the government was fake. It was, it was a puppet government. It was a house of cards, so of course that would have happened. I defended Biden when he pulled out because, as a matter of principle, we should have pulled out. Trump flips. He used to say we got to do it, and then when somebody does it, he's like, no, not like that. The real criticism is we're starving the country through sanctions, but of course Trump doesn't touch on that at all. But not a single answer. He doesn't give a single answer. He vaguely brings up how we don't like what's happening with the border and we don't like what's happening with Afghanistan, but he's asked what policy thing and. Look, what does this show you? It shows you something very simple. Trump is, he's all about himself. He's a narcissist. He's not thinking about the policies he would implement if he gets back in power. He just wants to get back in power. The first, I would have an answer for that immediately if I was asked that question. Immediately. He doesn't. He doesn't have because he's not thinking about it. He wants to be president again, and it's not about the policies. This is why the 2016 Trump campaign was way better than the 2020 Trump campaign. Because you remember that closing ad from Trump where he was talking about – he did talk more about policy. And he talked about how we got an elite uh, – a system of elites where they rig it against the average people. and oh, I'm going to fight for the average people, blah, blah, blah. And you look at his 2020 closing campaign ad, and he's like dancing to some goofy-ass music. He lost his the, – the pseudo-fake populist touch that he had, and he still hasn't found it. He's totally morphed into a Fox News grandpa. And the scary thing is even being a Fox News grandpa without a hint of populism left anymore – he still might end up winning because the Democrats are just that bad right now. God damn, man. That's the easiest political question to answer if you actually care about policy and fixing the country. And he didn't have an answer. He didn't have an answer. Cult. Cult of personality. The people who are still with him, it's all about just him. And um, that's why he said he's axing Pence For a 2024 run and the litmus test for being with him on the ticket is personal loyalty and admitting that the 2020 race was wasn't fair that's his litmus nothing to do with policy nothing to do with ideology it was never about that with him never i know you guys know that but it's just astounding when he's asked a direct question he's now probably the favorite for 2024 He can't even answer, well, what's the first policy thing you do? Can't even answer. Hasn't thought about it for even a split second, not at all, because it's all just personal to him. It's all about him and his ego and his image. And um, that is not the kind of person that should be a leader, and we've already seen how destructive that was when he was for four years. Okay, final story of the day. Have an amazing new poll that came out from the Kaiser Family Foundation on uh, vaccines. So take a look at this here. About half of unvaccinated adults say nothing will convince them to get a COVID-19 vaccine. Nothing, 48% would convince them. More research or transparency, 12%. If it were required for work, slash, if it were mandatory, 6%. Money and large sums of money, 5%. If a doctor recommended it, 3%. If it prevented 100% of infections, 3%. So obviously the plurality, almost the majority, say nothing is going to convince me, nothing. Nearly 50%. There's absolutely nothing you could say to me or no amount of research or evidence or data that would push me in the direction of getting the vaccine. That's really astounding. Now, by the way, I don't really believe all of the the numbers here, um, I think some of them are underreported, and we can talk about that more in a second. But let me continue to show you the graphs here. So uh, this one is Switzerland. COVID nineteen weekly death rate by vaccination status, all ages. Unvaccinated people, there are thirteen deaths per one hundred thousand people for unvaccinated people. One point four four for fully vaccinated, no booster, and then uh, 0.27 for fully vaccinated, plus booster. Let's go to the next one. So this is weekly cases in New York City. Not fully vaccinated, the line goes straight up. Vaccinated, the line ticks up just a touch. And then you see underneath there we have the Seattle area. Not fully vaccinated it shoots straight up. Vaccinated it shoots up a little bit, but nowhere near as much. So I'm showing you these uh charts because maybe one of these fence sitters is in the audience right now listening. And I want to show you that there's a tremendous amount of evidence and data and research that is not funded by the big pharma companies, which shows, no, actually, this, this thing does work, particularly against severe illness, hospitalization, and death, particularly against that. Um, there has been diminishing efficacy in terms of uh, it protecting you from getting it. That, so the new evidence is like, look, you can still get Omicron if you're vaccinated. Uh, doesn't protect as much against getting it, but it will be much more mild if you're vaccinated because the virus has evolved. So the original vaccines don't work perfectly in in terms of you don't get it, but you generally speaking, you don't end up in the hospital and you don't end up dying from it. So I'm trying to make the argument here for people, but who knows if they'll listen because 50% of the unvaccinated say nothing's going to change my mind. Now I want to give you the upside of that though. I want to give you the, the good news. The good news is We already have 80% of the country has at least one shot in their arm, 80%. So that means if half of the remaining say I'll never get vaccinated, that means we could still get to 90% of the country that's vaccinated. That's a pretty damn good number, man. That's a pretty damn good number. So despite the disproportionate uh, noise made particularly online from the anti-vax community, they do represent a fringe. They're a very loud and vocal and aggressive fringe, but they do represent a fringe, now, I said before, I'm not even sure I trust the numbers here, um, or certain numbers, and here's why. There were a lot of people who said uh, in certain fields, like, look, I'm, I'll am i quit if I have to get, uh, if I'm forced to get the vaccine, if there's a vaccine mandate in my particular workplace, and then when there actually was a vaccine mandate implemented, it was only like a fraction of the people who said that they quit, they quit who actually quit. I think there was one with police officers, and they were like, Thousands who said, look, man, I'll quit if you do this. But then of the thousands, only like six people actually quit. So and and so I think when it's, you know, five percent of people say money will get me to change my mind. I actually think it's more than that. I Actually, think if you really offered people one hundred dollars or two hundred dollars to get vaccinated, I think it would be way more than five percent who changed their mind and and they would go get vaccinated. Because, look, people need money. People need money. Same thing with six percent. say If it was required for work, I'd do it. I think that number would actually be higher, too. I do. Um, having said all that, there, is, uh, I, there are some who, under no circumstances, would get it. And that means, I mean, having a principled stance against getting the vaccine is so weird to me because that is no different than having a principled stance against uh, therapeutics. Because people are like, oh, well, there are some side effects sometimes with the vaccines. Okay, well, there's also side effects with any sort of treatment when you're sick. Some, people, some percentage of the population will have some reaction to some treatment that's not good so, but would anybody say, I have a principled opposition to antibiotics. I'll, under no circumstance will I ever get it. No matter what the evidence says, no matter what the studies and the data says about how well it works, I will not do it. Nothing will change my mind. We'd all look at that like that is literally the most bullheaded, idiotic thing I've ever heard. But with vaccines, we've just come to like sort of passively accept it. Like, yeah, of course. That's wild to me, man. That's wild to me. That just goes to show you there is with some segment of the population they look at like anecdotal stories or bad information from bad sources. And they just, they think that's the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And they refuse to look at any evidence of the contrary. And it's sad. It really is sad because I feel bad for those people. And it makes me hate our institutions, which didn't, um, didn't communicate effectively enough to convince people, no, seriously, this is the right way to do it. And we can prove to you why i think the the cdc the fda our, our health officials in this country have been so bad on this that it makes people turn away and go towards other charlatans and con men and frauds who don't know what they're talking about or, or giving a misleading picture as to the reality of the situation so anyway get vaccinated um but hey if you're in the 50 percent that says under no circumstances it's like i'm talking to a brick wall anyway so i guess just ignore what i'm saying but do it at your own peril Okay. We are done, baby. I love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace.